While the federal contracting world was worrying about a giant but slow-moving contractor cybersecurity requirement from the Defense Department, Veterans Affairs went ahead with a doozy of its own. Five months later, we check in on how it's going with Holland Knight partner Eric Crucius. Eric, good to have you back. Great to be here. Thanks. So this is a cybersecurity rule for contractors. Veterans Affairs actually finalized in January. Tell us roughly what it says, what it requires, and and then we'll get to what you've seen of the effects of it. Well, I really appreciate your introduction to this because, you know, CMMC and all the things that DOD has is doing has gotten a lot of play, and for good reason, too, because it's significant and important for our nation. But meanwhile, while everyone's paying attention to DOD, VA slipped in these uh, regulations, which are really significant. Um, They require contractors to do a lot of things, and they're kind of class-leading in a lot of ways. So uh, among other things, they require breach notifications within one hour, which is a very difficult task. DOD is currently at 72 hours. Um, they require seventy-two hours is not bad by federal standards. That's right. It's actually that's for if you talk to IT professionals and having responded, help respond to a lot of uh, breaches. Seventy-two hours is difficult too because, for whatever reason, more often than not, you know we find out on a Friday, and the response is due early the following week, and that seventy-two hours doesn't stop over the weekend. Right. Um, so one hour is really difficult. You're not going to have a lot of information at one hour. Also, it's just going to be kind of we had an incident and we're looking into it. Well, is that one hour from your discovery of it or from one hour from when it hits your network? Well, really from your discovery, um, ideally from when it hits your network, but oftentimes breaches aren't discovered for a long time. Months sometimes. Yes, absolutely. Even years for, for some more sophisticated breaches. So they expect within one hour of you knowing that you tell them about it. Um, also, you know, a lot of the government's moving towards compliance with NIST Special Publication 800-171. That's what DOD is focusing on. There's a couple of FAR rules and process that will focus on that as well. But the VA took a slightly different approach here and is requiring compliance with VA Directive 6500 as well as some other VA standards for contractors. And it's not quite aligned with 800-171, but that makes some sense because the VA has different kinds of records than other agencies do. They have a lot of personally identifiable information uh, for the veterans that they care for. So it makes sense that they go a different way slightly with this, but it's a different standard, so contractors should be aware that the standard is different. A couple of other interesting things in there. Uh, one is the VA does have a right to visit uh, on-site, the contractor site, to make sure that they're compliant with the controls. The VA also has the right to um, not pay uh, invoices if, if the contractor is not compliant. And something that will probably be significant in the future, we haven't seen it yet because it's too early, but there is a clause also that says that if there is a cybersecurity incident and personally identifiable information is involved, um, the contractor will have to pay liquidated damages to the VA for that y- incident. Yeah, so this has real teeth. Right, absolutely. And that, that teeth is right in the contract itself. There's actually a blank in the clause where the contracting officer is supposed to fill in an amount of the liquidated damages. And for the non-lawyers out there, uh, there are damages that are not are not knowable at the time that the contract is being written. So you do best guesstimate of what they are. And so the contracting officer will write a number and say like $3 per record or something like that that covers breach response uh, costs and, and credit monitoring, things like that. But if there's a million records involved, that's a $3 million you know, liquidated damages fine to the contractor, unless they could show actual damages were less. Right. And often, I mean, this is a pretty far-reaching rule. It imposes a lot of responsibility on the contracting function. The contracting officers, 
and the contracting officer representatives, I guess, by extension. Is there any evidence that it's dawned on the contracting officers yet? I mean, what are you? Are, are, are your clients seeing this yet? In effect, right? They, I haven't seen any of these clauses in the wild yet. They're there. They're in place. They're supposed to be in new contracts that come up. And you know, my reach is not is not the entire government, of course. But I have not seen uh, these new regulations in, in contracts yet. I expect we will. It just takes some time to, for these things to filter in. Sometimes there isn't an education on the side of the VA or any other agency about the, those clauses having to go in contracts. And, um, you know, I'm sure there will be some response and in in as these clauses make their way. And it's going to be significant. And I think contractors, you know, it's kind of everyone's kind of sleeping on this right now. But I think uh, we'll hear a lot about it pretty soon. We're speaking with attorney Eric Crucius. He's a partner at Holland and Knight. And those could be challenged in court, perhaps. I mean, are these do these go beyond what you might find in the Uniform Commercial Code, for example, these liquidated damages? I mean, if you don't report something but there is no harm, say you take two hours to report it, but nothing happened, no data breach was lost, non-payment of the contract seems like it may not even hold up in court. It seems pretty harsh overall. And... Um I mean, you look at the DOD's 72-hour requirement, a GAO study uh, a year or two ago, or maybe even as close as six months ago, said that half the DOD contractors are not reporting this within 72 hours. Um, I like to always say that that's not true of any of my clients because we always report something, even if we don't have the full information. But um, Film at 11, you yes. say. <laughs> we'll, we'll tell you more later. <laughs> but at least we're telling you there's something that happened. But the hour, you know, notification response is so difficult. Um, you don't, you barely know what's happening at that time. It's really a, a fog of war kind of deal, um, where there's just a lot of chaos sometimes. So um, I could see that kind of provision being challenged, and maybe an in, a, uh, an inspection of the of the contractor systems resulting in a non-payment being challenged. There's a lot of angles here. And as we've seen um, with court decisions over the last few years, especially in the wake of COVID, the the power of uh, the regulatory state to make regulations on contractors has has been curtailed a little bit. So I wonder, you know, if these regulations could be challenged in that way. I don't see a specific path, but with the way that decisions are going, you never know. Sure. Yeah, the courts are taking one way or the other very strongly. It's just a matter of which venue, I guess, you end up in. And right. that's where they hire people like you to venue, <laughs> shop the right venue to that's figure it out. <laughs> that's my hope anyway. <laughs> and we started with a, an oblique reference to CMMC, which nobody knows where that train is headed, either to the side rail or it's going to come powering down one morning. But there is the Defense Federal Acquisition Regulation, DFAR, the use of supplier performance risk system assessments. Now, that rule was finalized toward the end of March. Right. Quick review of that and any effect there yet? Sure. Um, this is a really interesting one also because another one that kind of flew under the radar, but I think will be significant for a lot of contractors. Um, it requires DOD contractors to use the supplier performance risk system to look at item risk, uh, price risk, and supplier risk, um, all three. Um, obviously, uh, item risk only for products uh, contracts. But um, it, re- it requires contracting officers to evaluate all those before awarding a contract. And if you look at price risk specifically, that means that contracting officers have to do an analysis of whether the price poses an undue risk on the contract. And um, you know, that's a price realism analysis that oftentimes contractors you know, contracts have to specifically state a price realism analysis has to be done in order for it to be done. Here, 
I kind of get the sense we, you can make the argument that it's built into the clause. So if a price is too low, anybody could file a protest saying, you know, they didn't comply with this with this new um, clause, uh, DFARS 252-204-7024. So um, we'll have to see how this bumps along, but there's um, the price risk and supplier risk um, and item risk are all things that will be evaluated based on a sliding scale. There's a database within DOD. Contractors have a chance to view that da- database. I could see some litigation coming from this, um, especially if there are, or protests if there are not awards made because of it. Um, and it also kind of brings attention to that supplier performance risk system, which contractors are supposed to be using now to input their compliance with 800-171, the NIST special publication. So um, I think it's going to encourage contracting officers to look at uh, at spurs for 800-171 compliance as well as these other things. So it makes compliance with 800-171 even more important at this point. Right. But getting back to the pricing question, I guess it's the government's perception or the Defense Department's perception that overly underbidding, or if that's such a phrase, pricing too low presents a risk. Right. And I've argued that in a number of protests. It's sometimes not successful <laughs> because they uh, sometimes say we're not obligated to do this because um, we haven't announced in the in the solicitation that we are going to do it. And I, we often make the argument, I'm not the only one, other attorneys do too, that the low price presents a technical risk to the to – it shows that you don't know what the project's all about, shows that you're going to cut corners, et cetera, et cetera. And the government – Or you lose money and you can't deliver ultimately. Right, right. That's exactly right. Um, you should help me write these protests. <laughs> but um, and here there is built into the clause um, something where they do have to look at that. So I'm hopeful that that will um, cause that will allow uh, a more fulsome review. Sometimes when the price is really low and the debt ceiling, right? That crisis was averted, but just kind of its closure. Give us a sense of what contractors would have faced had some sort of shutdown or some sort of interruption happened with the debt ceiling being reached. Because it's going to come up again. It, it's a really difficult situation because with the shutdown, at least the contractor stops taking on a lot of expenses because the government shuts down. They, the gar- contractor can't perform anymore, but they don't have to pay those salaries and all those kinds of things. Of course, they have other costs that they can't get rid of that quickly. But with the debt ceiling, contractors still have to perform for the most part. They're just not going to get paid in a timely fashion for that performance. And you can guess that contractors are going to me- be near at the bottom of the list of who's paid. They're going to be behind the Social Security recipients. They're going to be behind the bondholders and all that. So, you know, contractors should really be looking at their cash balance and and taking note of that and ensuring they have the cash to move forward at least uh, for a temporary basis. Yeah. If nothing else, there's rent. Right. Right. Attorney Eric Crucius is a partner at Holland and Knight. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview, plus links to more information on those DFARS and VA rules at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a... um, 
uh, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm 
about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. 
you want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. And um, being born in rural southwest uh, <laughs> Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.